Turn recorders on. All right, tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel according to John. Earlier I taught a number of doctrines, uh, all related to John and what John had to say. But we look at the doctrine of the kingdom of God, the doctrine of divorce, the doctrine of Christ, the bridegroom, the church, the bride, the doctrine of the prayer formula, the doctrine of the Son of God, the supreme Christ. And then when time expired, we were in the process of studying John 4, 20 through 26, and that was by way of the doctrine of the four divine institutions. And before returning where we left off last week, I want to give you opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. And then we're going to begin a review and we'll continue a review until we begin new material on page 2. So let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study your word. Guide us and direct us, for I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John 4, 20 through 26. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth. They are the kind, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And of course, we all know the Samaritans were, as some have said, half Jew and half uh, Syrian, if you will, or Assyrian, because Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and did some exchange of personnel, Jews to Samaria, I mean Jews to uh, Assyria and uh, uh, Assyrians into that little area called Samaria. But we've t- studied that on several occasions and know about that, but uh, this lady apparently knew quite a bit. Now let's look at uh, the doctrine of the four divine institutions, which I think is the best way to teach this. By way of introduction, the four divine institutions, four divine institutions are volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. And we've listed all of those with a brief little one-word statement about like volition, free to choose, free to succeed, free to fail. And, of course, these are things that are not really looked favorably upon in our country anymore. Neither is marriage, which should be leave and cleave. Leave your father and your mother and cleave to one another. Husbands love your wives. Wives obey your own husbands. And then family. The father is the head of the family. And the mother, of course, is the chairman, you might say, of of the board, with the father being the president and the children being subordinates. 
And then nationalism, we had a point or two about nationalism, that's under attack. And especially as we seem to be moving in the direction of globalization again, no longer uh, making America great. But point two, let's see how the divine institutions relate to God's divine decrees. The divine decrees represent the sum total of God's plan designed in eternity past. The plan centers on the person of Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 6. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. All right, God in His omniscience has seen all of our thoughts, actions, choices, and deeds, and then determined a perfect plan for our lives because He has seen the timeline and our choices. He was able to develop a perfect plan for each believer. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19 And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Our entrance into the plan is based on the principle of grace whereby the sovereignty of God and the free will of man meet at the cross. And now we begin new material with point 3.3. The work is accomplished by God while man gains and enjoys the Benefits apart from his own merit or ability. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right, God's plan was designed in eternity past so as to include all events and actions related to their causes and conditions as a part of an indivisible system every link being a part of the integrity of the whole. That is a mouthful. Alright, there's a whole plan for the believer's life. One failure, one success never changes the plan. God is greater than our failures or successes. Without interfering with human volition in any way, God has designed a plan so perfect that it includes cause and effect, directive provision, preservation, and function for all believers. God knew every cause and effect in our lives and made provision in eternity past. Under His plan, God has decreed to do some things directly and some through agencies such as Israel and the church and some through individuals. The divine decrees constitute one great, all-comprehensive plan, perfect, eternal, unchangeable, and without loss of integrity. The plan of God is consistent with human freedom, and God does not limit or coerce human freedom. God permits human volition to function. For example, He permits man to choose to sin, but certainly that doesn't make Him the author of sin. But in His sovereignty, He chose to provide a solution for that sin. 
God has seen the beginning and the end, and He provided a perfect divine decree for you and for me. So since we are a part of His divine decrees, we can find comfort in knowing that God, after knowing all the facts about us, determined and implemented a perfect plan for time and eternity. Certainly this is especially comforting when we realize all of that was done in eternity past. Alright, Romans 8, 29, 30, and 31. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. So what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now let's see how the divine institutions and divine decrees relate to God's established authority realms. Alright, what are those realms? Well, Word of God, pastor of the local church, various secular authorities, family, government, business, academia, athletics, military. All, of course, authority realms that we need to, of course, adjust to, if you will. Alright, let's look at uh, more about the authority realms. Point one, authority is the legal power delegated by God. People are by definition subordinated to other people for the proper functioning of establishment. Authority is ordained of God both in the spiritual as well as the secular realm. God, early on, established an organization chart. For example, the Father over Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That was, of course, by choice. Jesus over all things. Husband over the wife. Parents over children. Bosses over employees. Government over citizens. Teachers over students. The principal authority is inherent in the plan of God. A co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal Jesus and Holy Spirit agree to get under the authority of the Father. As deity, they shared the triune nature of equality. However, in time, Jesus and the Holy Spirit accepted temporal limitations. And I put the chart that I got from R.B. Theme in one of his books. It shows God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal and co-eternal and co-infinite. And they share the same ten essences. And we certainly could add to the essences, but I think the colonel has done a great job. Essences being sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, and veracity. An excellent chart that summarizes the relationship, again, of the divine decrees with the the essence of God and other matters relating to authority and uh, the development of the decrees 
and coexisting with the four divine institutions and certainly supporting one another. Now let's go on to 5.2. The Father developed the plan of propitiation and reconciliation. Christ agreed to execute the plan and the Holy Spirit agreed to reveal the plan. And that was the first time that Christ and the Holy Spirit ever got under the authority of anybody but under the Father. It's a teaching aid set forth in Isaiah 48, verse 16 and 17, where it says, Christ speaking, Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me with His Spirit. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. Alright, John 3.16 Of course, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 13 But when... He, the Spirit of truth, that would be the Holy Spirit, comes. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Two types of knowledge that He provides to us. Alright, the principle of authority is clearly seen in the garden. The woman failed by refusing the authority of the Word, and then the authority of the husband and was thus mentally seduced. Adam chose to eat the fruit. Alright, three one, reading through verse 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat tree, fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That, by the way, in Scripture elsewhere in the epistle says that's what doctrine will do for you. It will let you know good and evil. But he was going to subvert doctrine. He was going right to another what might have mattered to Eve a great deal. And when the woman woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Alright, it's mentioned in as a reaction and as a result, first Timothy two eleven. 12, 13, and 14, the book we have studied, of course, fairly recently. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Alright, that's such an interesting passage because it says she was deceived and became a sinner. And it wasn't the sin, but it was the the giving in to the deception 
In other words, if she was deceived, how could God hold that against her? Well, because it's not the reason, it's the sin that God hates. And of course, that's easy for us to say, but difficult for us to understand. But it's sin that God hates. And that's what He died for, not because of any reasons that caused us to sin. Alright, God has established authorities to permit the proper functioning of His plan in the devil's world. And let's look at a few of those authority realms again. The Word of God, 6.1. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We read it in all scriptures, God breathed and is possible for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for all good works. And uh, it's kind of like a headline on the locomotive in this church. That's why we have scripture. We want to be equipped for every good work rather than in order that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It's equipped for good works. And I know every time the colonel would quote that, he would say, that's not really what it says. Well, the NIV has corrected the mistranslation. It's so that man of, the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God would have for him. It's the equipping of us for divine good. Alright, Deuteronomy 11, 26, 27, and 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. And we see that so often when we see people negative to the Word of God as opposed to accepting it and cherishing it and wanting more. Alright, first Samuel fifteen twenty two, but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So of course that was a result of Samuel engaging, of course, with uh, Israel Telling him, oh, they went out there and brought all these animals back so they could sacrifice to God. That's why we did this. Of course, that was primarily Saul, if you will. And, uh, you remember he killed the king, Agag, and Samuel did. And he told him, you know, you should have followed the rules. God said, kill every one of the Amalekites. And yet I hear this bleeding in the background and you're bringing me this wonderful king to introduce him to me, yet I told you to kill him. So Samuel killed him. He cut his throat, probably. But anyway, uh, very interesting passage. Obedience is better than sacrifice. All right, and of course that was one of the reasons why he was lost the next battle, you remember, in Gilboa. Alright, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. 
Now, Proverbs 28, 9, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. Hebrews 4.12, again one of our favorites, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is the discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This, on the paper, is the NIV. All right, Philippians 2, 5, your thinking should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, so let his mind be in you. Uh, and then we have, of course, 1 Corinthians 2, 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, 6.2, the pastor teacher as again authority in the local church. Hebrews 10, 25, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And every second that we live, we see the rapture approaching closer. Hebrews thirteen seven. remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And of course, uh, the day approaching is the rapture. I forgot to pray for it today in our service, but that would be a wonderful event. Uh, so I correct myself. We should have prayed for the rapture. All right, thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then the passage we've studied several times, and I like to use it in its expanded translation, First Peter 5, 5. In the same way you novices in Scripture placed yourselves under orders of your pastor teacher. Yes, every believer must submit to his or her right pastor teacher and metabolize the teachings of your God-appointed instructor. It must be done with humility for God places himself in battle array against the arrogant, unteachable types. In contrast, he keeps on providing grace benefits to those who desire the word of God. All right, authority summary. One, the pastor teacher is over the local church. Again, First Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonished you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. All right, the wife must submit to the authority of the husband. Colossians 3, 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. First Peter 3, 5, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used at one time to make themselves beautiful at a, in the past, of course. They were submissive to their own husbands. All right, believers must submit to governmental authority. Oof. Titus 3.1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. 1 Peter 2.13 and 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those 
who do wrong, wrong, and uh, to commend those who do right. And then we've got a repeat here on 1 Peter 2.14. Now let's go to point four. Employees must submit to the authority of their employers. 1 Peter 2.18. We don't have slavery anymore, but it's a good example as far as employer-employee is concerned. 1 Peter 2.18, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Colossians 3.22 and 23, Slaves, obey your authority. Masters, earthly, excuse me, earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Right, and of course, you can parlay that into what's found in Ephesians chapter 6 with reference to employee-employer. Alright, point five. Children must submit to their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. Six. Both fallen and elect angels are under the authority of Jesus Christ. Mark one twenty seven. The people were all amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And then first Peter three twenty two, talking about Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So it is so good to know Christ rules the cosmos and including each and every life, thought, and action. We must know the supremacy of His wisdom, which has never been perplexed by any problem whatsoever, nor can He be counseled by any person or any being in the universe. Interesting to know in our time of great adversity and problems in our country. All right, we must know the supremacy of His authority. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All right, part 9. It is Christ who changes times and seasons, removes kings and sets up kings, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand and say, what have you done? And I thought perhaps the best way to look at this is to look at uh, uh, the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel in 606 was captain, uh, captured and taken to Babylon where he finally, of course, became the second man in command. He really prospered. But he had some engaging experiences with Nebuchadnezzar that uh, we could learn from, can learn from, and will learn from. All right, first of all, Daniel 2.21 says, talking about God, He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and Light dwells with Him. 
I thank and praise You, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of You. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So the king, you remember, had a dream. He wanted every, he wanted to know what dream was. He wanted to know what it meant. He rejected his various magic men because they couldn't tell him what the dream was. But someone said, hey, we know a guy who can do that. So Daniel heard about it. Then Daniel went to Arioch. You might say he was his keeper whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. That would include Daniel, Meshach, and Shad, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will inherit the, inherit the dream for him. Now dropping down to verse 29, talking to the king, As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, we're going to look at the statue on page 10.1. Daniel 10, 2.36 says, This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. And there you can see a statue again that I borrowed from one of the colonel's books, uh, which shows us the, the giant statue. And you can remember 606 was when Daniel was captured, and that's when the Chaldean Empire started, actually in 605. And, of course, the head of gold was King Nebuchadnezzar. And, of course, it also represented the Chaldean Empire. And you have 539, breasts and arms, they represent the Medes and the Persians, which would come next, because the Persians would defeat the the Chaldeans. And you remember that story, and that, uh, of course, is in the book of Daniel also, when they had the writing on the wall, and that's when the Medes and Persians took over. Then we had in 330 B.C., these dates, by the way, are circa dates and certainly arguable, we have the Greco-Macedonian Empire and the Hellenistic monarchs. That would be Alexander the Great and, of course, the four kings that took over after him, Cassander, Lysimachus, and Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And uh, that's the belly and the thighs of bronze. That's what it represented. He's going through and telling him all of this. It's, these are things that are going to happen. And, of course, 146 B.C., that's the rulership of the Seleucids, and then they lost out to the Romans. And that's difficult to say. When did the Roman Empire 
start. Nobody really knows. But a selected B.C. there, 27. And, of course, uh, the Roman Empire uh, was uh, when we had uh, what Colonel Thiem used to say, one of the greatest empires ever. But when you study it, it doesn't seem to be too much of a good thing, you know, especially when they started abusing the Jews. So, and, uh, and Nero and his cavorting around. And then we have, of course, the church age where we live today. And then eventually there will be the rapture. Uh, the end of the Roman Empire is pretty well established. You find very few historians would argue with 476. But we have then the revived Roman Empire, of course, during the tribulation period, and then the second advent of Christ. But an excellent chart and an excellent uh, of the time periods are not bad at all. But I went ahead and put up here Adam question mark as to when that happened. Avram is probably in 2000 or so B.C. And then Christ came, of course, in who knows, but circa 4 B.C. most likely. And then we had the cross at roughly 31, 32. Then we have, of course, the rapture, who knows, second advent, who knows, because this is unknown. And then, of course, the the millennium. So... uh, those dates are on our chart, on our board, for those of you who are listening by way of the internet or the podcast. But I do have the chart for you, and you can look at it and and uh, use it. But now let's go on. A little commentary on what we have. Do it, Daniel chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In verse 38, in your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Then the Medo-Persian and the Greeks, after you had, after you another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next the third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Rome 2.40, reading through verse 43. Finally, there will be a fourth king, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. In verse 41, just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, and even as you saw, iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and uh, will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And then the divine kingdom. Daniel 2, 44, reading through verse 37. So in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. The great God of heaven has shown the king what will take place in the future. Of course, that rock would be Jesus rolling down the hill and striking at the bottom. 
the, 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 the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors, now that's dropping down to verse 436 and the event that took place there just before he makes his statement about sanity, he was told by Daniel that you're going to lose your kingdom, but it's only going to be temporary. You are going to be possessed by uh, uh, zoanthropy, if you will, thinking you're an animal and you're going to go out in the field and you're going to eat the grass of the field and you're going to let the rain fall on your head. You'll let your hair grow long. You'll let your nail, nails grow long. Uh, and... Uh, uh, you will, however, go out there for seven years, and then you'll recover, and you'll come back and get your kingdom back. So this he was most proud of, uh, if you will. And he says, and he knew that God did this for him, and it was predicted that this would happen to him, and it did happen to him. And so as a result, he became a believer, Nebuchadnezzar. It says, at the same time, my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So we now have a ruler of the Chaldean Empire who became a believer. So those events are all set forth in the my teachings on the book of Daniel. So you can go to the website and you can on the uh, first page actually go down. You'll find a little square and you'll see Daniel. And you click on Daniel and then all of the various chapters of Daniel. Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, all of them will come up on the screen and you just hit it and you'll have a commentary. And then at the end you'll get a complete expanded translation of the book of Daniel. But all of these things have been provided for you if you so choose. So the website, westbankbiblechurch.com. All right, point 11. We must know the supremacy of His providence without which not a single bird in the extended reaches of the Amazon forest have ever fallen off any limb, and not a single hair of any head turns gray, or as in my case, falls away. All right, we must know the supremacy of his word, just as he learned from Daniel, and Daniel's wonderful prophecies to him that came true, and he became a living witness of the Lord's work. So let's see what we've got here. Supremacy of His Word. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Or in the NIV, the Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 1, as it speaks of Christ and how important He is and how superior He is to angels, it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. 
After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became a much superior, as much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten your, I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says that all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. You, like a garment, they, excuse me, like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all the, all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You must know the supremacy of his purity. He never sinned. He never had one millisecond of a bad attitude or a sinful lust. We must know the supremacy of his trustworthiness, that he always keeps his word absolutely without fail, and the supreme supremacy of his justice He will render all accounts settled in the universe, either on the cross or in hell. We must know the supremacy of His patience. He has endured you and me for decades. He has endured the world and He brings the sun out to shine on it. Can you imagine why the sun rose this morning on this wicked world so full of sinners? We must know the supremacy of His servant-like sovereign obedience. He kept every one of His Father's commands and embraced the cross with total willingness. He is meek and lowly and tender. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax. Isaiah 42, 1-4 Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. And we had our little dissertation on the islands earlier, didn't we? All right, now let's look at point 17 as we close her out. We must know the supremacy of His wrath. One day the earth will explode on the... Oh, excuse me. One day His wrath will explode on this world from heaven such that all who have rejected Him will call for rocks to crush their brain lest they have to face 
the wrath of the Lamb. And that is a partial quote from Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. All right, let's close her out. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to study Your Word. Certainly we know, Father, that You are our Savior and we want You to be the Savior of those who may not have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, be saved. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, if you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we recommend you do that right now because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For again, as we noted earlier, God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, Tell God the Father you're believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of teaching the Word. Now I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might become more like our Lord and Savior. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.